Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello, welcome to the show. This athletic show is brought to you in association with The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, a host of the show from The Square Ball. And of course, Phil Hay from The Athletic doing all the heavy lifting on this one. Hello, Phil. This is the Monday show uh, where you can you can read Phil's stuff on The Athletic as well. Is it going to be a post-mortem, Phil, actually, this one, just thinking about it? Because um, should we defer to the Football Clichés podcast to find out? Uh, yeah, probably. I should just say as well, I am in the dugout rather than in the stand, keeping my nose clean <laughs> as, it, as it is at the moment. <laughs> Uh, yes, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to read Phil's reaction to the Brentford game. And a uh, pound a month for six months is the offer. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Yes, it's the Monday edition of the Phil Hay Show um, where we review the game that has gone. Um, the Friday show will be coming up later in the week, usually Friday, straight after Jesse Marsh's press conference. Um, we'll get on to that later in the week. First of all, then we are here to uh, post-mortem then. Brentford five leads to Phil. Uh, normally at this point, I would tee you up with a question but I'm actually keen to find out where, where do you want to jump off on this should we do it in the same way that you approached um, your article in the post-match because I found that interesting because you've kind of led off on Jesse Marsh's behaviour good starting point you think yeah I think so uh, we we, uh, we did a podcast about two weeks ago and I tweeted it out one of the lines on the, the tweet was Jesse Marsh loves a rock and it has definitely been a theme of his, his fairly short time as head coach that he, he is very expressive in the dugout. He is very active down there. He isn't afraid of fronting up other coaches. Um, and he certainly isn't afraid of, of getting stuck into officials either. But I think what, what is interesting about Marsh is that it's deliberate and it's calculated and it's also very telegraphed. I went back to April um, in the game against Manchester City uh, to find the, the comments where he was talking about the fact that when it comes to referees, he almost employs a deliberate strategy of of needling them and needling them um, when decisions aren't going his way. And, and if he feels in a game that it's not that Leeds are not getting the rub of the green or his team are not getting the rub of the green, that the decisions are not falling for him, he tends to use kind of um, you, you would almost say like passive aggression, but you know anger or frustration towards fourth official, towards linesman, towards the referee in, in his mind to. Um, to kind of ch- to get into their heads to to change what happens, um, almost hoping I think that the decisions are going to start to sway the other way, and what we start to see, I mean, he he's dropping off a few Christmas card lists. You have to say he's had the running with large um, at the start of the season. He obviously had the the the, the kind of brilliant shade I thought thrown at Thomas Tuchel before the um, the Chelsea game about the fact that Tuchel shouldn't have been on on the touchline, but he had the booking down at, at Brighton um, for slamming the ball into the ground and then sort of a- actively asking the referee to book him. And then the red card on Saturday for the incident in the second half, the, the challenge by Arne Hickey on Crescenzio Somerville that wasn't given as a penalty, but more specifically wasn't reviewed by VAR, which I certainly thought it, it should have been. And I understood his, his annoyance about that. But it was very performative and it was very visual down the touchline, um, getting in the linesman's face. And it was the sort of thing that was going to invite a red card. 
And it just feels a little bit as if he's in that zone now where his own card is, is going to get marked about this. And and I did say to him afterwards, you, you've kind of spoken very openly about the fact that you do like to challenge referees and that you do kind of take this mental approach with them, this psychological approach with them. But doesn't it run the risk that that is going to influence how referees deal with you? Doesn't it run the risk that potentially it's going to start affecting the way in which referees look at split decisions that, that Marsh is, is unhappy with? And he kind of said, yes, you know, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing that already. And I think he feels the need now to to start opening some dialogue with the PGMOL or the, or the FA or whoever else to understand, I think, a bit better the aspects of the game and, and the specific decisions that are annoying him. I have to say, I don't think, particularly in the past week or fortnight, he's seen anything like the best of officiating in England. I think there have been quite noticeable problems and issues with the refereeing in, in Leeds' last three games. The time-wasting for one against Everton, I thought Graham Salisbury had a really difficult afternoon against Brighton. And and one aspect that I agree on that, that Marsh talks about is the fact that the inexperience amongst select group officials because of the, the massive changeover that, that there's been at that level, referees retiring or finishing, others coming up, certainly seems to be showing itself in some of the games. But it does feel as if Saturday was, was that sort of moment when the penny started to drop with Marsh. And, and he almost realised that it's not his prerogative to act like that. There, there kind of will be consequences. And, you know, we know from experiences the referees don't tend to, to react well to it. For the benefit of you, if you're wondering what the PGMOL is, that's the Professional Game Match Officials Limited, which is the referees body that supplies all the referees for the Premier League and the Football League, isn't it? And uh, they are uh, are they they're funded by the by the football bodies, I presume? They are, and it's it's where you go to in order to find your answers when you're not happy with the individual decision, or when you feel as if there's a, a broader problem um, with refereeing or, or things that you you have to understand. You will hear from time to time, and I know that this has happened at Leeds, the, of referees going into football clubs to speak to them about changes to the law, changes to interpretation. I mean, one of the things that Marsh said after the game on Saturday was that his understanding was that the threshold for penalties was supposed to be higher this year um, than it had been last season. And, and on that basis, he didn't understand the, the decision against Louis. Sinistera in the first half, the, the foul on Tony that, that led to Brentford's penalty. Um, I, he said that, that Leeds had, had reached out a couple of times. And, and if you go back through various programmes of the past couple of seasons, um, particularly season one in the Premier League, you remember Angus Kinnear writing quite regularly about the fact that they'd had, uh, on occasions, apologies from the PGMOL about you know the VAR decisions or other decisions that hadn't been correct or hadn't been reviewed. And it's you know the reality of football that mistakes are made and, and mistakes do get made. But there's there's definite focus at the moment on VAR without a doubt across the league. You know, it's not not just at Leeds. But I think Marsh does feel quite aggrieved by some of what's gone on in the past um, past week, week or two. Um, I think he has seen things that, that have frustrated him and, and disappointed him. Um, but I think, as he said on Saturday, he's also finding out that, you know, much more of this is going to lead to, you know, regular consequences. There's probably a high likelihood that he will get a touchline ban for this. If not, he'll, he'll get a, a fairly hefty fine. And all in all, you have to ask yourself whether it's a route to marginal gains or counterproductive. Well, we'll park the referee chat for just a little while, Phil. Um, we'll come back to it. Just one thing to say on Marsh. I, I very much get the sense that he he almost enjoys this aspect of it, the, you know, the theatrics on the touchline, because it's part of an entertainment industry, isn't it? Um, and, and what he's doing, I guess, sort of feeds into that entertainment. I think he does. And I think we do too, I think. 
everybody gets quite engaged in little touchline battles between head coaches. Um, and, and also people do get annoyed themselves watching the performances of officials and referees um, that, that aren't up to scratch. I, I, I wouldn't have said that the referee Robert Jones on Saturday didn't have any influence on it. That would be wrong. I don't think it was the reason Leeds lost. At Brentford, um, but he, he certainly does, and I think he sees it as part of his kind of managerial strategy or part of his managerial persona. I just think what he'd probably be finding out is that having come into the game thinking that you know he might be able to use that to influence results or decisions to to good effect, the opposite is probably true. Um, I do think that the more you try to take on officials, the more they're likely to take a different view of that, and ultimately, you know, the calls are theirs. There's, there's very little you can do to stop them doing. And what they're going to do. So yeah, it it seemed like a it seemed like a, a, a kind of relevant moment amongst quite a few on Saturday. It has to be said, it was a busy old day. So why did Leeds United lose that game at the weekend? Then Phil, quite apart from the obvious conceding of five goals. Well, I think that was it. I think that you know, the defensive weakness that we saw from them on Saturday was quite unlike what we'd seen in in the previous five matches. It, it wasn't that they weren't um, chinks in the armour at the back, and we we've spoken several times about the way leads are structured out wide and, and the fact that teams seem to find it fairly easy to get themselves in there or can certainly exploit those areas if they've got pace and, and they've got the right amount of um right amount of nous when it comes to, to turn over ball. But on, on Saturday it was just a, a catalogue of errors, particularly in the second half. And it was also mistakes at a time when it, when leads seem to be getting themselves back into it, you would have for example, it goes 3-2 and then straight away it's uh, the, the Mbwemo goal at the far end. The Mbwemo goal was really interesting because I almost felt that from one angle, it looked as if there was a flick off Tony at the point when Mbwemo was offside. If there wasn't a flick off Tony, then Mbwemo was clearly on when the ball was played from, from deep. And the other angles were, were pretty inconclusive with that. It was it was difficult to tell. Um, but I certainly thought on one angle, it did look as if it caught Tony before it hit Robin Cock and bounced in behind. But it was the fact that Leeds were out, seemed to be out of the game at two 0 back in the game at two one, and then you know the, the the mess for the third goal. I think ultimately dictated um, the the final result. That was almost a, a step too far and left Leeds scrambling. And and that was a case of Diego Llorente coming for a ball that he didn't win. Melier feeling that he had to commit. And okay. Fabulous chip from um, from Tony, who who was just on it all afternoon and played extremely well, and it really did terrorise Leeds for for a lot of that. Um, but a bit of a gift at the same time, and nothing more of a gift than the fifth goal where Urenti um, gets robbed by Visser, and it's um, it's there the, the ball's there to be stuck away. It was you know without it being a, a, a quality performance because I didn't feel it was. I felt in the first half there was. A, a huge amount being asked of Harrison on the left-hand side. Everything seemed to be going down that way. Difficult for him to make a lot of it because Brentford were doubling up on him, um, not giving him huge amounts of space to play. And the balance wasn't quite there. It, it didn't click in the way that, that it has when Leeds have played better this season. But at the same time, I felt they were in the game enough and I felt they, they had the measure of Brentford enough to get something from that. It's just the case that when you defend as they did and you give away goals that they did you, you're going to lose that's how it's how it's going to go um, and that for me was the the overriding issue um, on the day was that they the, the defensively they just were not sound enough Do you think Leeds dominate play or do you think Brentford let Leeds dominate the play to some extent or possession at least because all they had to do was was sit back and, and hit us on the break it was it was a masterclass in um, counter-attacking wasn't it really not that we didn't make it a lot easier for them uh, I always go back to um, it's SofaScore who do the uh, attacking momentum graph. And if you look at that game at the weekend, it was, it was all leads. 
Brentford had five attacks, scored five times. They just sat and waited and picked us off. Yeah, I think in the flesh it didn't really feel like that though and it didn't look like that a great deal either. There was a problem on the right-hand side where Leeds were without Rasmus Christensen who'd had a knock in training before the game. I think Leeds are hoping he'll be back for the Forest game next weekend. Um, Cody Dramey came into the team. Ailing was on the bench. I have to say just a little thought on Ailing. I thought he made a big difference when he came on. I thought his attacking play was good. Um, The assist obviously for Rocker's goal um, but there'd there'd been a bit of that beforehand and I think I think it just kind of realigns the thinking that all of us haven't, or a lot of us haven't assumed that, you know, this is the tail end for Ailing now. He's out of contract next summer and he seems like he's been usurped by by Christensen in that position. There might just be life in him left. And I think that's a, a that's quite a, going to be quite a big decision as time goes on, depending on how, how Christensen's form settles. But Brentford had, I felt Brentford had enough of the play to, to deserve something from that game, definitely. It didn't feel as if they were under the cosh for huge amounts of it. But they were under the cost to a greater extent at the start of the second half after Marsh took off Harrison, kind of realigned the team, got Bamford onto the pitch. That was actually when there was more variety in Leeds' play, when they seemed more dangerous, when they looked like they had the, the measure of the game. And again, you know, it was that situation looking good at 2-1 and then suddenly there's the missed tackle from Urenti. There's Melier unable to get out and, and um, get the ball from Tony's feet. Tony finishing in the way that, that he did. And even though it went to 3-2, later on, you, you felt at 3-1 that it was going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for, for Leeds to get anything out of it. Tony shows you the value of a fit and firing striker, doesn't he? When you contrast it with Bamford, who brought a lot to the team, but you can just see his rustiness in him. Like, that miss was absolutely awful, wasn't it? It almost defied science, that. Um, and even watching it back, you couldn't quite work out how on earth that had happened. The only saving grace was that Rocker scored in the, the, the phase afterwards. So it, it wasn't as if that was a, a wholly wasted opportunity. It was kind of the goal in, in that attacking process. But yeah, no, without a doubt. And I think Tony, again, underlines one thing that Brentford are extremely good at and have been for such a long time now, which is the ability to find players at low cost whose value and, and quality and impact appreciates drastically. They're starting to talk about Tony for England. And I have to say that if Bamford's had a chance and you know he's, he's had his cap and is looking before the World Cup, then Tony is, is probably worth a look too. And it surprises me a little bit that there haven't been more clubs who've had a dabble at him. I can see ways in which he would fit for, for sides who are at a higher level in the Premier League than Brentford. Um, I can imagine he would, he would go for a pretty substantial fee. And I think when he's in that mood, he's... He is incredibly difficult to handle. He never misses penalties. My Brentford colleague was telling me 18 penalties in a row for Brentford just always scores. And the free kick was a was a beauty and at the top corner. And that chip as well. It just speaks of a player who, who is full of confidence and full of, of self-belief. And without a doubt, it would help Leeds to see Bamford return to that sort of confidence level. Can Brentford be held up as a good example of um, how you recruit for making your way up the Premier League? Oh, very much so. Although I think you'd, you'd be... And not just even how you, you go up through the Premier League. If you bear in mind the capacity they were working with at Griffin Park, the the environment they're in, you know, in the City of London, where you have vastly bigger clubs than them, and it's a, a battle to attract players, it's a battle to attract supporters, you know, to, to compete in any way when you've got, you know, Chelsea not too far around the corner, and then across London you've got Arsenal, you've got Spurs and, and everybody else. Their growth from a lower league side to Premier League club is a, is a remarkable story and doesn't seem to be drawn to a halt at this stage. It seems to be continuing to make progress. I think when it comes to um, recruiting for the Premier League, you'd have to judge that over probably three or four seasons and see how well established they are. 
but they are a consistently good team and they don't seem to make a lot of errors in the market. And as I said, the, the thing that they do better than anything is to find players who cost comparatively small amounts of money and enhance them drastically. And even, even somebody like Christian Eriksen last season, he had a good enough spell at Brentford and was able to shine enough in that team. And he is a quality player and he is probably better than, than that level, without a doubt. But he was coming back from you know, his, his, his heart problem in a situation where a lot of clubs, I think, would have been in two minds about whether or not to, to take a risk on him or, or to take him on. And you know what he was able to do in that team in that period kind of opened him up to, to much bigger options in the market. So, yeah, they're, they're a good model and they're a good story and it's very hard to knock what they've done. The thing about Ericsson is he's quite contrary to what Brentford normally do. You know, that's, that's not really their model at all. I think it felt a bit like a one-off opportunistic move that, that Ericsson was there, he was there to be had. He was probably a player of quality, the sort of quality that Brentford otherwise would not have been able to bring in. I mean, Ericsson, you, you thought of prior to his illness as a um, as a Champions League footballer and, and, and probably still is. So not somebody that Brentford were ever going to realistically be able to lay their hands on in, in normal circumstances. And as has been shown, as soon as the season finished and, and his contract was up and there were, there were other opportunities, he, he was off. But yeah, I, I don't, I think in amongst, in amongst the recruitment, the, the, the kind of targeted and long-term or sensible recruitment that you look for, the, the, the recruitment that takes a lot of scouting and, and a lot of thought and everything else, I don't always think that there's any harm in having the odd obvious option or the odd easier option in amongst the good players or good players. And although it was a tough weekend, Phil, there was a big high point in Luis Sinistera, another absolutely fantastic goal. I mean, it's one of those get-you-off-your-seat moments that... Yeah, from very little for him as well. That's what, I've, that's what I'm starting to like about him, is that I wouldn't say he reminds me of Rafinha in body language or style necessarily but I thought that finish on Tuesday against Everton there were little shades of Rafinha in that and I mean that that effort at Brentford was was an absolute cracker really difficult position to score from perfectly placed um, across Ray and, and into his, his far corner he's going to be a really good player Sinistera I think he's going to be a really good signing and I think these two games in the past week have probably nailed down his place um, for the foreseeable future. Somebody who I think if Leeds can keep in the game regularly, feed a lot um, and, and use wisely is going to make a big impact. So just summarising that game then, um, it felt to me like, and I said this over on our Matchball podcast, it was the perfect example of a Premier League game that just runs away from you and then snowballs out of control. Yeah, and you saw that from the save at the end that Millie pulled off to stop it going to 6-2. You know, you, it had been a goal between the sides with about ten, five, ten minutes to go and then suddenly it looks like an absolute rout. And and that's that's how it how it can happen. I think it leaves Marsh with a, a big decision about his defence for the Forest game. I mean, I always tend to err on the side of Liam Cooper on the left side of um the two centre backs. I think Robin Cock has done enough in, in the first part of this season to deserve to stay there and to deserve a, a decent run of games. But I think Marsh is gonna have to think seriously about that performance from Urenti. And he's going to have to ask himself whether or not the right thing to do for a bit of stability and, and um, a bit of calm for what is going to be a pretty big game against Forrest is, is to bring Cooper back in. He almost said himself last week that he thinks his preferred centre-back pairing or his best centre-back pairing is, is Cooper and Cork. And, and it seems to me that that might be the way to go now. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Jesse's comments then in the in the post-match, Phil, uh, lit the blue touch paper again on discussions around the transfer policy. One in, one out seems to be the situation around deadline day. Is it that simple or is there more complexity baked into this one? There is slightly more complexity. Um, in the end, I must confess, I didn't listen back to the podcast we did for Deadline Day because um, it was late in the day. It was a scramble. It was um, it was sort of sliced and, and diced. But we were talking in the original recording about the accounts at Ellen Road, the, the financial situation at Ellen Road. And we were talking about how Leeds would have financed Charles de Kettler. The, the question everybody had in their heads of if there was... £35 million pounds or thereabouts to sign the Kettler or if they were able to commit to that deal. Why was it towards the end of the window that there were comments from Marsh, which seemed to imply that there wasn't a huge amount of cash and, and almost from Kinnear in his programme notes as well. And, and I was saying that, you know, it was at the stage where the sales of Rafini and Phillips had paid for the, the bulk of the transfer business, particularly the five big first team signings who'd come in. Beyond that, anything that was done was going to have to be funded via either shareholder investment or loans or by the selling of players or loaning of players which allows you to um, recover wages and which is what they've done with Dan James going down to Fulham. Marsh's quotes afterwards were, were saying I, I asked him you know can you explain the Dan James situation and, and he was implying that he was disappointed to lose him you know and saying it, it didn't really want it to happen he didn't make any secret of the fact either as we were saying last week that, that uh, James wanted to stay and he only signed last year but he said you know essentially in, in order to bring somebody in somebody had to go now, from what I can gather, I think that was definitely the case had it been Gakpo on deadline day. I think that was definitely the case had it been Dieng from Marseille as looked lightly until he didn't actually get on the plane and, and then failed a medical at Nice. Um, <laughs> in what was, what was the kind of um, random story of, of deadline day. I'm not so sure that Nonto would have strictly required Dan James to go because Nonto is not an expensive player. He's not on expensive wages. It wasn't anything like the cost of deal, um, particularly that they were talking about with Gakpo. I suspect in reality, by the time the Nonto deal was getting pushed um, and, and brought to the table, which was very late on, on Thursday night, it's just worth saying that actually it transpired that Leeds pretty much had a deal in place to sign him in January and with Zurich. So had already done medical tests on him to, to have a look at him um, prior to the to deadline week. And it, it meant that they were in a position where when nothing else was coming off, they could bring that forward and do it in August rather than in January and, and get themselves a forward. Although how much Nonto is, is going to play and be involved um, kind of remains to be seen. But because that was so late in the day and it really was the last few years of, of the window, I don't think there was any way in which Jesse Marsh was going to say even if we don't get anybody, bring Dan James back. And even with Nonto coming in, I don't think he was going to say, bring him back anyway, because we could do with somebody more experienced than Nonto. I think he'd reached the point where he understood that, you know, James is going to be pretty unhappy about how things had gone for him. James had been down at Fulham, he'd done the medical, he'd done the signing photos, you know, a bit reminiscent of 2019 when he never quite made it over the line at, at Leeds. And I think it, it would have felt to him to have been extremely unfair 
to have done all that and then said to James, no, listen, you can't go. You've you've got to got to come back. But I don't think anybody can deny that had it been Gakpo or had it been Dieng, finance would have had to have been found. And by getting Fulham to pay for um, James's wages, you know, you cover the cost of the player coming in, you potentially cover a little bit of the cost of the transfer fee, depending on how it, it all works out as well. But yeah, um, it was... I think it was apparent that, that people were not at all happy about that. Or, or more to the point, I think we're a bit perplexed about it, to say the least. And, and it's never, Angus Kinnear's word, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. And it never helps, I think, to hear that sort of thing on the back of a result like that. I think if you go to Brentford and you win, and you win handsomely or win convincingly, then to a large extent, what's happening in the transfer window it kind of drifts away a little bit or you know becomes less of a concern. But I think it, it properly homes attention in on that when you have a bad result. We've spoken before about my favourite word from the TV show Succession, which is optics, i.e. how things look. And it left Leeds United looking a little bit desperate, didn't it, late in the window, doing what they did. Uh, And I think the question probably surrounds the idea that people don't understand why Leeds United are trying to be nice to everyone rather than doing what's best for the club. Surely they should have brought James back. If there's no need to sell him, if it's not genuinely one-in-one-out for financial reasons, wouldn't it have been better to retain him? As I say, that I think is my reading of the, the situation with Nonto, um, less so with other deals, which I think would have required him him to go. The problem is that you, you've had a, a documentary in which one of the episodes has rested heavily on James being stitched up right at the death coming into Ellen Road. You've had, I think it was Kinnear writing in programme notes a, a, a long, long time ago now about how bad that was, how unfair it was, how when the opportunity came to sign him again, Leeds almost felt obliged. Bielsa clearly wanted James and, and the club did too, but felt obliged to actually make that happen because what what would have happened, what had happened with him previously. It would, I think, to some extent have looked fairly hypocritical to have put him through the same thing. And I don't think either it would have been a healthy situation to have pretty much transmitted the message to him that you're expendable if we can find somebody else. And to then suddenly say to him at the last minute, mm, I haven't quite found somebody else, so actually you can come back and crack on. And I understand that he's under contract and he's been paid and, and everything else, but there is an emotional aspect to this. And I think when you when you kind of make it so clear that you, 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 you're willing to let somebody go if better can be found in the transfer market, it's pretty difficult to, to put that into reverse gear. But to return to my previous point, Phil, who cares? Football's full of absolute hypocrites and... By the sounds of it, according to Marsh's comments, these conversations started some weeks ago. So it was never a fait accompli, was it? He was never definitely going to leave. They just mentioned it to him. And yet he'd come on against Chelsea and set up one of the goals. So come on, can't we all just put our big boy pants on and just say, right, look, he hasn't worked out. Come back to Leeds. You know, we'll look at things in the coming months, whatever. But right now, we just need to knuckle down and get on with the season. It just feels to me like we've been overly nice for no obvious footballing reason. And our first duty is to keep us in the Premier League and another... 170 million quid's worth of turnover, isn't it? Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I just think about the, I guess, the the psychology of a player being down in London on a day when you don't actually have anything done and dusted and pretty much waiting to be told whether or not you've found something that means that you don't want him, particularly after he's been signed a year ago for, for £25 million. So it makes me wonder what the, the motivational... Uh, I, I don't know. James always seems like a committed guy to me, motivated guy, but it does make me wonder what the impact on that would have been. But perhaps you're right. Perhaps they, they should have done that. I just think they got themselves into a position where it would have been a bad look to have done that. And perhaps that doesn't matter. Perhaps it, it, it perhaps it, it could have been done. But I, I thought from what Marsh said on Saturday that he was almost implying that he didn't feel like he could do that either. 
And fans will reply to that by saying, well, surely the 50, 60 thousand pounds that he gets every single week will soften that blow of being forced to go back up the M1 to Ellen Road, you poor lamb. I, I, do, I do get that, but it's still a job. It's still employment. You still have sort of levels of, of treatment that you, you expect or, or look for. Marsh said himself he didn't think it, it was great the way it had panned out for him. Yeah, it, re- it remains to be seen. I mean, it, it's that that irony, really, of the fact that you see a lot of criticism of James and you see a lot of questions about his impact. And I, I feel like that too, that it hasn't worked brilliantly over the last year. It isn't quite clear where exactly he fits best and it certainly doesn't seem to be up front. But it is a body gone, without any doubt. It is a body that Leeds could, could potentially need. Um, perhaps the structure of this season helps them out more because they are going to have a big break through November and December and then January will open, uh, the January window will open as the, the games get going again. But, you know, to, to flog an old horse of a conversation, January and Leeds do not tend to mix too well. But we're going back in for Cody Gakpo. We've already heard this. We know now, don't we? So it'll be a great January. And yes, there is a little bit of scorn in my voice, Phil, which I'm doing deliberately, but you know what I mean? <laughs> they, but, you don't say. But, but Phil, see. The, 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 these, these owners, they can't have it both ways. You can't go talking no. to Fabrizio Romano and say, we'll go back and say it on record yourself, we'll go back in for Gakpo in January. But simultaneously, the CEO is saying, well, we don't really do business in January because that's what Angus Kinnear said when he sat in this very studio that I'm in now at the start of the season. He said, we'll say it next January. So... The, the messaging is getting very, very blurred around Leeds. I think that's the biggest problem about what's happened, is that what Marsh, I, I, what, what Marsh said has, has undermined the programme notes and a lot of the messaging that's come out prior to that. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and, and when it comes to Gakpo, there's nothing in the way that PSV acted with Gakpo that suggests that there would be any possibility at all of a club doing a pre-agreement with them for Gakpo. Quite clearly what they wanted to do was to get him on a bigger contract, let him go to the World Cup, it's become clear over the past few days that Louis van Gaal was involved in that same to Gakpo. I'm not sure how much you're going to play at Leeds, but you will play all the time at PSV. If you're playing all the time at PSV, I'm going to use you in the World Cup. You'll definitely be in the squad. Van Gaal seems to be very, 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 very fixed on the players in his squad being regulars at, at the clubs that they pay they play for. If Gakpo goes to the World Cup, if Gakpo has a good World Cup, if he has a good domestic season with with PSV, his value is going to increase. You know, his value is going to go up. And I think he will will move fairly rapidly into the Champions League bracket. So I would question, quite honestly, whether beyond this window, Leeds have much chance of signing him at all. I, I, I'm not sure how realistic that is. Um, it's not to say that, that they can't, but something tells me that if they were going to further beyond this window that's just gone, then they're going to have to seriously, seriously push push the boat out. So it's fine saying, you know, keep an eye on Gakpo, return to it further down the line. I sort of think that the, the other clubs who are likely to get involved in that will make it very, very difficult. And I'm sure that any fan listening to this would, uh, you know, who operates with common sense would agree with you there, Phil. It looks highly unlikely, doesn't it, when you miss the boat on this one and then start talking publicly, publicly about it. It leaves Leeds ninth this weekend's games. Eight points on the board still. It's going to look a lot healthier if we beat Forest, isn't it? If you chalk up your 11, you, you're sort of a, then you're almost a, a quarter of the way to mid-table safety there, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. They could have done with a better week last week. Um, I always thought Brentford would be difficult. I think Everton were kind of there for the taking and a, a slightly missed opportunity. It's a fairly weighty game, Forrest, I think, because it will it will certainly give the season a, a, a certain complexion. I think if you win that again, it looks like you know, it looks like you're making the sort of progress you want to be making. If you lose that, 
then suddenly it's three defeats and, and a draw from four games, and and it's it's a it's a little bit of it's like a short term rot after what was a, a kind of short term surge at the start of the season. So yeah, I think there'll be a lot of eyes focused on that, and quite I mean we'll get into this properly towards the end of the week, but quite difficult to know what to expect from Forest other than about eight hundred people on the bench. And again, we will we'll talk about this um, when we actually preview the game, but you have to be winning games like that, really, don't you, to uh, establish your proper mid-table credentials. But that, that's probably a conversation, as you say, Phil, for, for later in the week. Let's return to the refs, because we've um, we've learned that the PGMOL are now looking at the VAR shambles from the weekend following requests from the Premier League. And this is not necessarily concentrated on Leeds, is it? It's the, it's the Newcastle issue, which seemed fairly terrible. The other very glaring one was the, the West Ham-Chelsea incident, where... Uh, Mendy, I hope he's all right after that such a brutal assault there late in the game. <laughs> it's it's three seasons or two and a bit seasons into this now with VAR, and I think the message that everybody who was enthusiastic about VAR or at least supportive of it in the first season tried to push was that over time this will settle down and over time it will find itself and over time the the teething problems and the the gremlins in it will disperse and, and disappear and and it'll all be fine. And it just isn't. It's so opaque, particularly when you're in the stadium. See, we, we were talking about Marsh at the start of this podcast, and, and I was kind of saying that the way in which he's acting is probably going to cause him problems going forward. I, I think that that seems seems pretty obvious, and that was that was kind of the message from the red cards at the weekend. But I do understand the things that are annoying him, and I do understand why when you stood on the touchline and you see that challenge by Hickey on Somerville, and it, it, you can't tell if it's been reviewed and there's no attempt by the referee to go over to the monitor and, and to have a look at it, you're asking yourself whether you've been fairly treated. I mean, Marsh called it a lack of respect, not reviewing that one. And, and I kind of understand what he means. I think rather than a lack of respect, I think it's a case of fairness, really, that that did look very borderline. And, you know, if Sinisteras had been worth a review, you almost feel that that, that one would have been too. When we've spoken about VAR in the past, we've always said that the basic problem with it, with it was that it, it wasn't ever able to eradicate interpretation. And that is interpretation is one of the key aspects of refereeing a game. That that not everything it's I remember sitting with a, a manager once and somebody was saying to him, refereeing in football is no more difficult than umpiring in cricket, see. And this manager said, That's not true because in cricket you only need to know the rules. In football, you need to interpret what's going on. You need to know if a challenge is a foul. You need to know if a coming together is just accidental, if there's more to it than that. You need to be able to, to judge in a split second or, or in a short period of time what is a penalty and what isn't. And unfortunately, there's no algorithm for this. There's no computer that can decide for you. It still goes to a guy in a studio who looks at the incident and has to make kind of human decision about what do I feel like, what do I feel about this? Is this a penalty? Is it not? And you have to say that, that there is therefore the scope for bias to creep in, there's the scope for nerves, anxiety to creep in, the thought about you know if it's a particularly big decision, what happens if I say yes to this, what happens if I, I say no to that? And it just doesn't feel like it's working. I cannot disagree with Marsh when he says that the past three refereeing performances for Leeds have not been great. I don't think Leeds have played brilliantly across those three games either. Um, and to be fair to me, he does say that. But it's uh, it's become a problem again and it's incredible that we're a month in and already it's um, scrambling to try and um, try and uphold the merits of VAR. Speaking as a layperson and as a fan, looking at what's happened 
over this last weekend. I don't know what they're trying to achieve. I look at VAR and I find it just a confusing concept because my brain starts to muddle up when it starts to factor in this clear and obvious aspect and then this performative uh, pantomime of, of going of going to the monitor. What What is it that they're trying to do? Are they trying to protect the referees or are they trying to get decisions correct? It's not, it's not clear to me. But clear and obvious has no definition. There's no definition for clear and obvious. If I said to you, explain to me what clear and obvious is, what would you say? It's entirely subjective, isn't it? You can't. There's no. There's no. Of course it is. So you you have the video replays, but at the same time you're saying to the you're saying to the VAR, when this is clear and obvious, you can intervene. So they then have to use their judgment to decide what is clear and obvious. And meanwhile, you've got millions of people watching who will all take a different view on what is clear and obvious. Take the the foul on Ericsson um, in the the Man United Arsenal game yesterday. If you if you pick through Twitter. A lot of people saying not a foul. A lot of people saying was a foul. A lot of people saying, you know, it was it was kind of one of those 50-50 calls. And given where it wasn't the pitch and, and everything else, it should, the game should just have been allowed to flow given that the referee didn't give it in real time. You're going to have this forever. I just don't see how. Um, you see, the, the thing about goal line technology is that it is about technology and that is all it's about. It's either over the line or it's not. And you can create you can create computer systems, you can create data systems that can analyze that to fractional, fractional degrees. So you you know, even if it's a millimeter over the line, that um goaling technology should be able to tell you that. You're just never ever gonna get that with VAR. And I think the people who thought that VAR was gonna solve a multitude of problems at the start were extremely naive about that. And I think they completely misjudged the fact that in the thick of it, you were still gonna have humans. You were still going to have people who had to operate it, had to make decisions, had to take their own view on what was going on. And that's never going to change. So with that in mind then, Sinistera, was that a penalty? The challenge on Tony? I felt it probably was, although I understand why some people didn't. I didn't think it was particularly sensible challenge in, in that area of the box. But having said that that was a penalty, I thought there was a really strong shout for the Somerville one as well. And... As I say, you sit in the ground and unless it comes up on the screen saying VAR check, you can't tell what's going on with it. You can't tell whether somebody at Stockley Park is saying in the referee's ear, nah, I've had a quick look at that, don't worry about it, carry on. You can't tell whether the referee has has left it completely. I mean, one of the things we haven't mentioned and, and should do is that I don't think the referee, Robert Jones, gave a decision at all for the Tony penalty. That would almost be my biggest problem with it. He seemed to just throw that upstairs. You know, rather than saying it's a Leeds free kick for Tony kicking the ball out of Melly's hands or it's a penalty for Sinistera's challenge, he did nothing, stood in the box, and then VAR came back and said, that's a penalty, which again doesn't seem to be the way in which it, it's supposed to be used. So Sinistera... Um, well, just to stop I, you, Phil, sorry, it wasn't even yeah. that clear cut, was it? Because it involved a three-minute check. It was them saying, right, come over here and do the performative theatre aspect of coming to the monitor, watch it 500 times, and just and by, by which time the crowd's just getting irate. No, you're saying nobody quite knows what's going on. You can see it as a viewer at home on the telly, but if you're in the stadium, you're snookered. I think the I think the, the caught between two stools. They they want it to look as if it's incredibly smooth and you know almost like click of a finger. Yes, yeah, sorry, that's a penalty. You should have given that, and it's awarded. But they also want to make it look like it's been taken seriously, and I think they'll, they're almost straying now towards the point of making it look like it's been taken too seriously. You know, the decisions that have to be that are laboured on and, and looked at time and time again, 
I don't think do anything for the spectacle and, and almost just kind of raise the frustration of people watching, particularly if you, you don't agree with the decision. The Sinistera challenge, I think if that's against you, you probably want a penalty. Uh, that That's my feeling with it. And I saw some people saying, you know, he, he gets the ball, but he did also go through the back of, of Tony. It was just a risky challenge in that, that position. But VAR is a much broader, wider concern. And quite honestly, I don't know what they're going to do about this. It's established now and it's there. And you don't get the sense that there's any appetite on the Premier League's part or on referees' part to, to get rid of it again. But they've got themselves into a corner with it. I go back to um, Angus Kinnear actually on this one again. And when we sat down at the, the start of the season and chatted about the ticket allocations and how the sales were being done at Leeds, Angus Kinnear sat there and explained how the tickets were distributed and therefore it gave people who didn't understand more information and could then, you know, maybe if they don't, even if they don't agree with him, at least they understand the reasoning. Surely the same sort of logic needs to be applied to VAR and put some accountability in there, play the conversations or release them afterwards so the referees and the VARs know that there's going to be scrutiny there and it's not just going to be, you know, a, a thing that's done behind closed doors where there's no real consequence for their actions. They do this in other countries, um, but I, it's only my personal opinion, but I don't think they particularly want that scrutiny. and I don't think they particularly want the conversations um, to be heard. I think if they were happy about that and if they did, then then that would have that would have happened already. That's it. I mean, it's it's not helped as well by the fact that the laws change all the time. And that's not um, that's not down to the PGMOL or, or the FA or, or what, whatever else. You know, that's a, that's a global thing where the, where the rules are tweaked, um, and sometimes those don't help either. You know, interpretations of handball. We had the the that season where any time the ball hit your hand, it was basically a penalty, and then it was suddenly no get rid of that. I in the Everton game, I don't know if 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 you got a good look at the offside decision against Damari Gray um, mm-hmm. for the, the goal that he scored in the second half that was ruled out. And it was, you know, it's good for Leeds that it was ruled out and um, and happy days there. But I I looked at that and thought, yes, his elbow is in front of the last man, but, you know, his feet and his body and everything else is kind of slanted before him. And I, I, I just don't think they know what it is that they need to do in order to nail this down to the point where it works absolutely perfectly or works as, as well as it should. I think it's constant and chopping and changing, which tells you that there's uncertainty about this in the corridors of power in the same way as there are massive, there's massive uncertainty about it on the terraces with players, with, with coaches. And it, it you know, it, it is a source of aggravation at the moment, nothing more. It's just created a different type of problem rather than solving the one that, that existed, hasn't it? But I, we can park this conversation. I'm sure we will return to it again in future weeks, Phil. Before we head off then into our, our Monday can you pick a man of the match from that game at the weekend or is that too much of a struggle? I would probably give it to Sinistera um, for that goal. Uh, the, the, another decent performance from Millie. Again, I thought, um, I know he was involved in the, the third goal, but it was the defence in front of him that I, I thought that had let him let him down for that. I did think Ailing had a decent game when he came off the bench. And, and as I say, that probably that's probably going to be something to consider as, as time goes on and, and Marsh really decides on what the best, you know, the, the, the best setup is on, on the right side of his defence. But for that goal and a, and a cracking finish, I'll give it to Sinistera. Nice one, Phil. At the Phil Hayes Show on Twitter, uh, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod if you're not yet reading The Athletic. Pound a month for six months. And we'll reconvene towards the end of the week and we will preview the game against Nottingham Forest. Must win, Phil. Must win. That's what you said earlier, wasn't it? Must win. <laughs> We'd never dare. <laughs> we would never dare. We'll speak to you later in the week, Tara. The Phil Hay Show.